Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and it's Pride Month. And since our team feels less cynical and more hopeful about Pride Month than I do about Black History Month, or about Juneteenth, which was just made a federal holiday last week, and I'm still trying to wrap my mind around how that all happened. But people are more, less cynical about Pride than I am about these different, you know, Black events. And also on the on the more serious, you know, side, since the political attacks on the rights of the transgender community are really escalating and spreading across the country, as a central feature of the post-Trump right wing doubling down. On today's episode, we're going to try to better understand what's happening with these political attacks, where they come from, what they mean, and kind of where we're at within this political moment in the country. And we're going to be more broadly focusing on the work of and getting to meet a real rising star in this country's politics overall and in the LGBTQ community in particular. Um, before we get to our guest, I'm joined, um, as always, with my co-host, Charlene Chang, who is out uh, it, internalizing the reopening and experiencing it directly with her family, I believe. So some parts non-Berkeley she is at. So welcome, Charlene. Uh, where, where on the road are you and how are you and your family uh, engaging with uh, Pride Month? We're down here in sunny Southern California, a little overcast today, but in Redondo Beach and it's beautiful. Uh, we were with some old friends yesterday, rented a boat. And mm. as, I, as I said, after being cooped up for a year all together, it felt really good, like be on the ocean and be out and about, see old friends we ha hadn't actually seen for more than a year. Like, what so, was the opposite of being cooped up in a house, being on a boat, uh, exactly. on the water? <laughs> yeah. And um, I will say we, we drove down. So all the, the traffic through L.A., I think all of L.A. was out or, or I just forgot. I did used to live in L.A. I mean, the traffic is like wow. we just sat and it was like the world's largest parking lot during I argue, you know, summertime. People are out post post quarantine lifestyle. So um, before warned anybody coming down here, but it was, it's been fantastic. Thank you. And yes, happy pride. I am just really thankful for um, the chance to get to observe it on our podcast today and talk about some important issues related to the LGBTQ community. And, you know, I was just thinking about how my daughter's school, which luckily just did open up for the last, you know, little bit before it had to close for the summer again, they were able to get their annual pride. Um, they usually do a parade. And this time they just stood outside the school and kids could dress up, you know, they could wear rainbow colors and, and draw a sign or poster. And it's just lovely. It, it, it has, you know, just been such, like you said, a time of uh, assault on the LGBTQ community, especially the trans community. And that's why today's conversation is so important. And again, fitting because it is Pride Month. But I, as I believe every day should be Black History Month, as we've talked about, I do also believe every day should be Pride Month. But here we are. So we are going to talk about it. And it's timely before June is over. We're going to hear more from our special guest today, Rebecca Marquez, Texas State Director for Project One America. We'll hear from her a little later on the show about what's happening on the front lines for LGBTQ rights. Before that, I wanted to frame up this conversation in a bit of historical context. We love history, and history serves just to provide a big container for contextual purposes for today's any issue today. In an article for the 19th News, which is a news platform everybody should check out, LGBTQ reporter 
Kate Sosin talks about Promise to America's Children, a coalition pushing anti-trans legislation across the country. On that group's website, the group claims that, quote, America's children are under attack. They're using lawmakers to sign a, quote, promise to protect children from sensitive topics. These sensitive topics include information on abortion, sexual orientation, gender identity, and sexual education overall. And Steve, I know in your new book, which you're still working on, tick, 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 (laughs) how we win the civil war, you've drawn some parallels, really interesting parallels between the language Republicans and religious conservatives are using now to attack young transgender youth today, and the way that the right also has historically villainized Black people in this country. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, no, it's you're mentioning this thing about the uh, protecting children from sensitive topics, right? This is happening right at the same time where you have that, and then you have all these, you know, supposed critical race theory bans and whatnot that everyone's running around, all these, you know, the the right wing people running around um, defending these Confederate statues and monuments, right? So we, mm-hmm. we want to, you know, protect the heritage and lift up the, you know, the history of the uh, people who held slavery, but it can't talk about anything else. But I think all of it is kind of part and parcel of the political, you know, battle plan, right? I mean, my, in the book is, you know, it's called How We Win the Civil War. And, you know, what started as a theoretical construct is actually becoming, you know, very non-theoretical in that the, the South, the Confederates never stopped fighting, starting with uh, five days after the Civil War murdering the president of the United States and have continuously fought up until this moment. And the way that they've gone about fighting has been very consistent in terms of the elements of the, you know, they really call a Confederate battle plan. And at the core of it, and I do think that these attacks in the LGBT community and the trans community are interwoven in this and draw from that same uh, uh, battle plan, it's been all about scaring white people that dangerous people, particularly people of color, are coming for their children in general and coming for their daughters in particular. Right. As you look back at the very first laws that states passed in the you know, the early 1700s, a series of slave codes that were passed specifically to control and oppress black people. And the justification was that you had to deal with the rapine nature of black people. This is written into these early laws. Then more, you know, recently in 20th, uh, 20th century, Emmett Till, 14-year-old black boy in Mississippi, was lynched after being accused of uh, supposedly offending this white woman. And then, you know, his mother actually insisted on an open casket. And so the whole country saw the brutality of how he was, you know, attacked and killed. And that galvanized much of the country's uh, civil rights movement. This was 1955. In a lot of ways, very similar to the George Floyd video galvanizing the country as well. But the, the whole Emmett Till attack was supposedly, again, defending a white woman. And then it's no accident, right, that when Trump rocketed to the top of the polls in 2015, so after he says that Mexicans are rapists, right? And of course, it's coming from a man that 26 women have accused of sexual assault. So you have that kind of historical piece. And that now it's no accident that these attacks are occurring when they are occurring. And it's no accident that Trump followed Obama, the first black president. And so we have had this massive backlash to multiracial, multicultural progress 
and move from that to having, you know, a straight white man defending and ironically straight white Christian man defending. What he, he was very far from an actual Christian. But that's been really the forces that have been unleashed and validated from the highest offices within this country. And so Ron Brownstein, the writer, talks about how the 2020s are going to be like the 1850s in a lot of ways, where you have these contending forces around, are we going to move away from a white nationalist country, or are we going to move backwards in that direction? And so what we've seen since the attack, and I actually thought for like two weeks after the insurrection, I was like, well, this is, now people are going to see, and then that the, the, the uh, public support for uh, what Trump has been about will diminish. Right. You, right. right. <laughs> but that, that lasted like 48 hours, right? Mm-hmm. So If that. Exactly. So you've seen this incredible doubling down all across these different state legislatures across the country. And really on the front edge of that, um, those attacks have been these attacks and these bills that are anti-trans bills. And that it's tied into this inflaming the fears that people have um, about what they're happening, right? And it started with the, the uh, you know, the so-called bathroom bills in, um, uh, like around 2018, with the messages of your daughters aren't safe. And so that same historical fear-mongering um, they were doing there, and then now it's, and even like the bills that they're talking, that they're laying out now, it's again about protecting, you know, girls and from these supposedly dangerous threats that are actually out there. So, it's part of this long history. It's very similar to the anti-gay marriage measures in the early 2000s, trying to in- whip up as much fear as possible as a way to mobilize their base to win elections. And I've just been really astounded by the level of coordination and just strategically how they've moved on this. On a recent episode of the New York Times podcast called Sway, lawyer and deputy director for transgender justice at the ACLU, his name is Chase Strangio, noted that of the 33 states that have banned transgender girls from competing in sports, claiming that they have an unfair advantage, zero have identified a trans athlete in their state. And yet the bans have happened and it's 33 states. And so this is uh, just an enormous full frontal assault. And yet without having to have any evidence and just, you know, being able to successfully move on this that way. Many of the groups lobbying for anti-trans legislation are the same ones, by the way, no surprise, that have pushed for anti-LGBTQ laws for a really long time. In that same article, that in that 19th um, platform that I mentioned earlier, Kate, the writer, had quoted GLAAD president and CEO Sarah Kate Ellis stating, it's no surprise that the ugly wave of state attacks on trans kids traces back to a few very familiar national anti-LGBTQ groups. They've opposed LGBTQ equality for decades, fighting marriage equality, which we're going to talk about a bit more, and now targeting trans youth. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. It, it, it's part of this ongoing piece. It's very um, reminiscent of the attacks on marriage equality, right? I mean, and people have, you know, forgotten that from the, when the early 2000s, when Bush was running, all these ballot measures around, you know, banning, quote unquote, you know, gay marriage. I remember somebody, um, LGBT community says like um, gay marriage, or as I like to call it, marriage. Right. right. <laughs> and so, so that was, you know, the, that was that wave at that time, but that the politics of that have flipped and com- completely oppositely. Right? So 2004, 
the you know poll so that there you know the majority 60% of people opposed same sex marriage whereas today 61% support it so we've had a complete inversion and so that issue has lost its salience and so that's kind of how they've more gravitated now towards going after trans right i i think it's just so fascinating you and i are of a we like to say vintage <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where um it's it is something I think I tend to forget, but once when we're talking about it now today, we're remembering the history and you're surfacing that percentage shift. Um, I mean, numbers, you know, numbers are tell a really tell the story, but going from 60 opposed to 61 supporting, just incredible. And I remember that when I think back, I remember when the the attitudes, right? The atmosphere was so opposed and how the attitude has changed so much. So Steve, in terms of that vintage, we talk about the past 15 to 20 years, you've witnessed and I've witnessed that basically two decade window of dramatic change. And within that time, you yourself had been deeply politically active in the progressive movement with the Democratic Party. In that time, like what lessons have you taken away from the change? Like what, what have you know, your feelings been about that observation? And what do you feel like we've learned from this particular, if we want to call it a case study on a really big shift in a, on a progressive issue to just well, being I mean, mainstream? Right. Well, I think there's one today. fundamental lesson, actually. And so if you look at the arc of it, and so and that really has to do with not running away from these issues politically. Mm-hmm. And that historically what consultants have done, what Democrats have wanted to do, and it's very applicable now to the whole racial justice challenges, is to downplay it, ignore it, don't talk about it rather than engaging and challenging and changing minds. And that if you look at the whole multiplicity of changing public opinion, utilizing art and culture and the media, um, really you know, sharing personal stories that was done during, during Me Too, we have the empirical evidence now through the whole you know, marriage equality fight that you can change public opinion and build majority support for justice and equality. And this is, I think, a very important debate we're having right now because many, many voices in the progressive space and the Democratic Party in particular feel like you have to distance yourself from those issues if you're going to, quote unquote, win. Mm -hmm. And that really, I think, frames up our conversation that we want to have today with Rebecca. So I wanted to share a little bit more about her. Rebecca Marquez is the Texas State Director for Project One America in the Human Rights Campaign where she leads the organization's legislative and electoral work in the state. Prior to joining the Human Rights Campaign, or HRC for short, she served as a political strategist for the ACLU of Texas. In that role, she led the organization's LGBTQ and reproductive rights work at the Texas State Legislature and advocacy efforts across the state. Before that, she served as the Florida campaign organizer for Oceana's climate and energy campaign, where she successfully led bipartisan local and statewide initiatives to prevent the expansion of offshore drilling to the Atlantic. She holds a degree in political science from the University of Central Florida, where she got her start in political organizing. So, Rebecca, welcome. So great to have you on. Thank you both uh, for having me here. So, yeah, thanks for joining, um, Rebecca. And so um, as we get started, can you maybe just share a little bit about how you came to do this work and to do the, in general, to do this work in Texas in particular? And I think that, you know, we were talking before about the kind of the arc and how a lot of these struggles have I mean, they've been going on forever, right? But they've become more 
you know, kind of prominent and mainstream, but people don't necessarily see careers and they don't really know the leaders who are carrying out this kind of work. So can you give us all, and then, you know, as Charlene was saying, you started out doing some work in the environmental space, et cetera. So how did you come to be doing this work um, with HRC? And by the way, it was very confusing in 2016 when Hillary Clinton was running for president and with the initials HRC and you had the human rights campaign out there. But a little bit of how you got to doing this work and what was that journey? What were some of those decisions that made you focus in doing it in a place like Texas, which has not exactly historically been the cutting edge of the LGBTQ uh, movement? You know, that's a great question. And it kind of, my story, I think, hits two of your points of like that arc that you're talking about. Um, well, first on a personal journey, you know, I I was a student in Orlando and uh, this was back talk about vintage, I guess, (laughs) Um, over a decade ago. uh, And, but, but kind of just in one of those, you know, shocking moments, kind of seeing the work that we're still doing today. Um, My school at the time, you know, I was a student and my school at the time, my university was, was expanding non-discrimination protections um, based on sexual orientation. And when I went to, you know, ask folks, uh, what about gender identity, you know, to cover trans students and faculty and staff members. I was basically met with kind of a wait, wait the turn uh, when it came to trans protections and kind of served as a microcosm for, I think, some of the same fights we're seeing today. Uh, so, you know, I started a petition and, and did old school organizing. And then I realized uh, through some mentorship that you could make a career out of this, which sounded amazing uh, and led me on my professional path uh, in Florida is where I got my start. But later on, you know, in Florida, I think, Steve, I don't know if we've talked about this, but I was actually, you know, I didn't have any ties to Texas, um, but I was home in Florida uh, working at Oceana at the time. Mm -hmm. And I saw the Wendy Davis filibuster on Twitter. Oh, wow. Talking about looking back now, you know, and, Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I had never been to, you know, the Texas legislator online, the TLO website, which I use now like every day of my life. Um, but, you know, a bunch of friends and I who have had no ties to Texas were just completely enthralled with what seemed to be a really defining moment and, and, and a huge impact on me personally. So, yeah. So just for our listeners who may not follow the uh, trajectory, right? So this was 2014, if my recollection is correct. Wendy Day was a state legislator in Texas, and she blocked the adoption of this, you know, very terrible anti-choice uh, bill by having this like multi-hour filibuster. And then all the people from around the country started, and it, if you could hold out until midnight, the session would end. So all the people from around the country were like watching, became this really dramatic moment um, in, in in politics. Absolutely. And, and and it kind of folds into everything today. They're seeing, you know, she was successful. She, she stood up and, and I think they had to call three special spe- sessions to end up just passing mm-hmm. that bill uh, because she was su- successful. So, you know, that really inspired me. I looked into Texas and I said, I think that's a place really worth fighting for. Mm. And it seemed like a place with a lot of people working to really change the narrative here. So uh, I moved to, to Texas in 2014 and 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 really just have found, I think, um, a political home in the state. So what is it you do? 
what is your actual job there in terms of what your work is? So that's a great question. So, you know, HRC is in an interesting position, human rights campaign. Um, we do work both at the federal and state level. Uh, we work really closely, though, at the state level with uh, partners like Equality Texas, Texas Freedom Network, um, and a lot of other groups on LGBTQ advocacy and other issues. But but we primarily still work uh, at the federal level. And, and I lead and what my job is um, to lead our volunteer base, um, our staff on the ground to really make an impact here in Texas, not just in the short term, but we are long term looking here and look at culture change in Texas. Uh, so we do that through a few fronts. You know, of course, I think what we're mostly known on the ground for is our electoral work. Uh, we engage in both state and federal races here. Uh, I think last election cycle, we endorsed more candidates than we ever have in history in Texas for us. So we're growing our footprint here uh, long term. And of course, legislative endeavors. And here in Texas, that means a lot of defense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this session, we I think we, we saw over two dozen anti-LGBTQ bills. This session alone? Yes. Wow. And that was the most we ever had here in Texas. So just to give you a sense, I mean, that is including the 2017 infamous bathroom bill fight. And so, you know, that, that's been a, a disappointing uh, trajectory. Um, so, so here in Texas, a lot of our time on the ground deals with defensive work at the legislature. So as somebody who's on the front lines in a state like Texas, but part of a national organization that's um, dealing with um, you know, the overall uh, equality movement. How different is it in Texas, and and kind of what's it been like? You're saying there's multiple, you know, whatever, a couple dozen bills coming down. So what's it been like in particular um, this year? You know, I would say Texas is interesting, especially for HRC. We we do have on the ground staff in, in many states, uh, but primarily they fall into two categories, right? Which is the states with electoral opportunities. Uh, what we call like swing states, traditional swing states, Mm -hmm. states that are a little bit more challenging and and more culture change uh, approach uh, states, you know, which is what Project What America does in the South, which, you know, we have presence in Arkansas, Mississippi, and Alabama. And Texas is kind of a merging of both of those, you know, frames and where we do, we are in a position to have electoral success and, and wins and gains, but we are still tremendously, you know, fighting these legislative battles. And I think this legislative session, what we saw were, were really two things, which was um, a backlash from the election. Uh, you know, I think folks at the state level feel emboldened when there's a Democratic president. Um, and of course, the, you know, continuing from the toxic rhetoric that President Trump had over the years, especially around transgender uh, Americans. And then the other element of this, which was the Bostock Supreme Court ruling, uh, really, you know, which for those who may not know, uh, was a historic landmark uh, Supreme Court ruling around uh, protections for sexual orientation, gender identity uh, for people in the workplace. And, and at least that's how it was originally uh, defined. And we're working on expanding what that those protections would mean. But um, we knew there was going to be a backlash. Uh, to, to Steve's earlier point, we saw this, you know, in 2015 here, uh, in Houston, uh, with the, the fight around the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance, which um, was a particular attack on trans uh, Houstonians, 
and and we saw that being you know kind of the backlash around the Supreme Court ruling then around marriage. Uh, so we were anticipating you know a, a surge, but I don't think we we any of us expected these many bills and for it to be this harsh um, and and for it to be this mean. A lot of legislation is aimed at you know trans children. Rebecca, I wanted to ask you about a recent ruling, and I'll give some context about the ruling um, to those listeners uh, who might not know about it. There, again, there's just been this coordinated assault against the trans community, and it's not, it hasn't just been limited to legislation. There have also been attacks on the judicial side as well. So, for example, last week in a case titled Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on whether contractors receiving taxpayers' dollars could be granted an exemption to non-discrimination laws based on the institution's religious stance. Again, to provide some context, in this case, it was the Catholic Social Services, a taxpayer-funded foster care agency that sued the city of Philadelphia after the city pulled its contract with the agency. The Catholic Social Services had failed to comply with Philadelphia's non-discrimination laws by rejecting same-sex couples as foster parents. In its lawsuit, Catholic Social Services claimed that the First Amendment gave it the right to avoid the city's non-discrimination ordinance because of the agency's religious beliefs. So the court found Philadelphia actually in violation of the First Amendment's protections for free exercise of religion after it had cut its ties with the Catholic um, social services, but yet it didn't overturn government's abilities to enforce non-discrimination laws. And I, you know, read about this and, you know, tried to wrap my head around it and still a little bit confusing and feels um, sort of surprising to me, but I wanted to ask you what you, you know, feel like the ruling meant. Is it a major step back for the LGBTQ movement? And do we see this as kind of a signal to other anti-LGBTQ groups that are gaining traction that, hey, look, um, you, you, have, you have this kind of power. You know, that's a great question. Um, I, w- I would just start to say after working a few years at the ACLU that, uh, you know, I'm not a lawyer. Um, I joke that I play one on TV, though. <laughs> um, so I will keep my, my comments more, more limited. I would say, you know, I think for, I think for both sides, nobody really got the the victory, you know, that they would necessarily want from this, at least, you know, our opposition didn't. Um, most would describe this as a narrow decision from the court. Uh, but I think, you know, what you did hit on was something that was important, which was that there is, governments do have and can have uh, and enforce non-discrimination laws as long as they do so neutrally. So it's a little bit more technical. I think for us, you know, what we what we want to focus on and see still is that, you know, the best interests of the child should still take uh, precedent in most decisions around child welfare. Mm. That gets lost in some of these, you know, conversations. And and for us, what we know and what we think needs to be the reaction is, of course, passing the Equality Act at the federal level um, to leave, you know, not as much nuance around the issue. Can you can you say a little about what the Equality Act is? Because I think that if you look at the, um, you know, there's been different victories, but then there's been different, you know, things that haven't passed. And so can you just distill what that actually is and what it is that people are fighting for on that front? Absolutely. So the Equality Act um, is the federal legislation that we um, are, are most hoping to pass at this point. Um, 
and, and right now it is in the Senate, um, the Equality Act is basically codifying protections for LGBTQ people uh, in civil rights law um, federally. And so for, for us in states like Texas, uh, this would be monumental. Uh, this would be incredibly necessary because we do not have broad uh, state non-discrimination policies. Um, so, you know, just the three areas that this would most uh, protect folks, which I think most folks need to think about uh, is of course employment and housing and public accommodations. Those are three. Um, and, and we do not, you know, I think a lot of, if you poll people, a lot of people think that LGBTQ Americans already have these protections, but we don't actually. Yeah, no, it's actually fascinating. And I was working on my first book because everybody thinks like, oh, you know, Brown versus Board of Education ended segregation. That only ended racial segregation in schooling. Mm, I mean, it was right. actually perfectly legal to discriminate on race in hiring and promoting in businesses up until 1964 Civil Rights Act. So this whole issue around protecting who's not protecting is not a guaranteed thing. So um, Trump had by like executive order or whatnot, it issued these like anti-trans executive orders, right? Particularly, I guess around the military, things like that, right? And then didn't Biden just undo it? So maybe if you could just quickly describe what happened, but I'm, I'm particularly interested in how has that reverberated within the community in terms of both of those things, the actions that Trump took and then Biden's, are people feeling like, you know, how, how big a blow was it? And then how big a victory is it that Biden turn, overturning that? How has that been playing itself out? You know, that, that's a great point. So Trump, uh, you know, banned or at least issued executive order uh, banning transgender people from serving in the military. And, and to Steve's point, uh, President Biden quickly you know, undid that with an executive order as well. You know, I think uh, you know, the, the executive order that Trump issued never really fully went to effect because I believe uh, it was being litigated. But I think this is kind of just what the takeaway for us in most impacted communities are, right? Which is uh, having a pro-equality president like President Biden is incredibly important. Uh, we need somebody there that understands the issues that face uh, LGBTQ people, especially at this point in history, trans Americans. But really we need more than just a, a friendly uh, president. We need federal legislation that provides full coverage and protections. And we also need to make a change at the, the state level um, because we know, you know, a lot of President Biden's issues, uh, including with the Department of Education recently, have been incredibly important and, and they are consequential. But we know if, if we have an anti-LGBTQ president again, they could equally, you know, undo a lot of the good work that President Biden has done uh, with the stroke of the pet. So I think that that's always a take home and you can kind of see that with what's happening at the state level with these anti-trans laws. You know, to an earlier point, there there are no, in, in any of these states, when you're, when you're asking questions, including here in Texas, when you actually ask the lawmaker or the author or any of the, the advocates pushing for this, this discriminatory legislation, they, they can't put, like, point to an actual in-state case. Um, right. They keep pointing to, I, I don't know if you all are familiar, but there was this case, uh, one one girl in Connecticut. And going back to your point, Steve, about how it kind of mirrors um, some of these, these racist attacks, it, it's completely 
about that. Mm -hmm. In Connecticut, there was a black trans young woman athlete, and she won, I think, like one race over this white cisgender uh, girl. And and the girl in Connecticut filed a lawsuit on behalf of that. And that's always the case that everyone points to. And it's very racist. I think the the white cisgender girl that, that made the claim ended up beating the the athlete um, multiple times and actually a scholarship to a 1D school. So I don't really know what was lost there, but clearly, you know, it mm. hits on the core of what our opposition is is really focusing on. And it is, it's, it's transphobic, it's racist, um, it's misogynistic. And so they kind of will not give that up and they will look for other areas to do this in. Um, and, and so I think for us, it, it really has to ch- come from as much t- down to up as it is top down, um, some of these changes, because um, we're going to just see the, the same attacks, you know, d- despite the administration's best efforts. So in, in terms of the multidimensionality or the intersectionality of these pieces, I'm very curious what you're seeing and experiencing in Texas in particular, right? It's Texas is, a, you know, is in fact, certainly in terms of the population, not the voters soon, a majority minority state. Texas used to be part of Mexico until the United States stole it in the uh, annexation of the Southwest so that they could practice slavery um, in 1848. And so a lot of the attacks coming down in the legislature in Texas are also, you know, the voting rights suppression, trying to really limit the political power of people of color. And you have all these different, you know, anti-LGBTQ, anti-trans uh, legislation as well. So I'm very interested in the, the dynamics and the challenges, frankly, of, of how much awareness there is across these different movements about one another's issues and what's that process like to educate the communities of color about the anti-trans pieces and then the the uh, LGBTQ movement about the the racial issues. How how have you seen that playing itself out? You know, that's a that's a great question. It's and it's probably I think long term looking um, the core of, of what we try to do here in Texas long term um, and 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 address. I just on the surface level to begin with, you know, our equality voters here in Texas and most of our support are predominantly uh, young women, people of color. Mm. And young people just across the board, those are our biggest supporters. That's where we uh, do the most work when we can activate them and get them to vote. Uh, We know they will vote for our candidates. And so, you know, I think there's a tremendous responsibility and need for all of our communities to work together in a state like Texas. Um, Quite frankly, Texas is is too big of a state and the fights are too big uh, to do alone. Um, so building those relationships, building cross-movement understanding is incredibly important. And, and, you know, besides that, you know, here in Texas, we have suffered a lot of loss, in the, especially in the trans community um, here in Texas, particularly with Black trans women. And so, you know, when it comes to violence against the anti-LGBTQ community, when it comes to discrimination claims or any disparity that we see across the board, in our community, it affects our Black and Latino members um, and women predominantly the most. Um, so these issues are our issues. And I think getting everybody to understand that has been work that we need to do. And I think 
one thing, you know, that we learned from HERO, um, which again is the 2015, we lost uh, our equal rights ordinance in, in Houston because the other side was, our opposition was very successful in attacking trans Texans um, through myths and, and lies. Uh, you know, one thing that we saw out of that was that our opposition really liked to find moments where they could wedge uh, what they saw as LGBTQ rights versus uh, the rights of people and community of communities of color. But at the end of the day, what we've seen is that, again, like I said, the majority of our sub- people who care about LGBTQ rights and who will vote with us and advocate for us are communities of color, are women. Uh, so we know that they like to exploit, you know, I would say the exception to the rules, um, but we are are committed to not letting that happen. So it also means for us to show up intersectionally. And I think uh, this session, particularly this legislative session, we really made an effort around voting rights. Mm-hmm. And if you couldn't imagine, you know, a better kind of example of how our issues are all uh, intertwined, you know, the Heritage Foundation, which is like one of the leading anti-LGBT groups, uh, took credit for writing the voter suppression bill, uh, the mm. main suppression bill, SB7. Or right. So, you know, this is a group, to an earlier point, that we've been doing work against, you know, for for forever. The Heritage Foundation, they're a tremendous uh, think tank when it comes to anti-LGBTQ laws. And on a secret recording, they bragged about crafting some of that language. Wow. Yeah, which yeah. is what we're up against, right? The Heritage, Heritage put together like this, like I think it was a thousand page document for Ronald Reagan when he came in around how to advance the conservative and right-wing agenda. And so they've been very focused for a very long time on these issues. Really effective. Rebecca, before we go, I wanted to just thank you for touching upon and reminding us that real people's lives are at stake, uh, fellow Americans. And to uh, quote a recent Guardian headline, this year, 2021, apparently is on track to be the deadliest year for transgender people and non-gender conforming people in this country. And we know that these legislative attacks have a direct effect on people's lives and the way that LGBTQ people are perceived including trans people and how they are treated even before the bills are passed, if, if they are. But even just that a reminder that every day we are losing people to the violence, to the hate and to perceptions and that these attacks, oh, they, definitely, they definitely don't help. They are, you know, work hand in hand. And as someone who's been doing this work, I was wondering what has given you the most hope? And then for our listeners, what suggestions can you give them as we continue to watch these battles play out and state houses unfold? What can they do? What can we all do to help? In terms of what's given me the hope is that every session, we ask a lot of people. <laughs> um, it, it, this session, you know, we, again, we had over two dozen anti-LGBTQ bills, and they never get easier. And some of them are more sinister than others. But at the end of the day, we're always asking people to keep showing up and, and sharing their pain and their story. And it's not always easy. Mm-hmm. But every session, you would be surprised and had how many people keep doing it and how many new people are engaged because of unfortunately, these negative bills. Um, So we've seen a lot of trans youth. Unfortunately, you know, for them, they 
they're finding their voice in this difficult moment, but a lot of them um, have made use of that and found their power. And one student actually came up and said, you know, that this is what he decided he wanted to do for the rest of his life after testifying <laughs> to his. Oh, oh wow. Manager. Wow. So those are the things, you know, and, and seeing, I would say the, the first of, of some of the, the, the work that we've done, you know, we're not there yet to see all of the fruits of our labor, but we've grown and strengthened our cross movement coalition partners. I would say, I think at one point, just back in 2017, we had uh, lawmakers, democratic lawmakers uh, at a higher number voting against us, but we've done work um, in showing up for other issues as well and building real partnerships and understandings and, and seeing that the vote changes that go along with that have been very hardening. So that's always been good. And then I would say for people on the ground, the best thing to do is, of course, uh, find out your organizations that are working year round in the state and, and partnering up with them. A lot of us, I've mentioned some other groups, but we work with Equality Texas, ACLU Texas, of course, um, but other organizations that don't work on LGBTQ issues directly, like Texas Organizing Project, Planned Parenthood, of course, and, and Texas Freedom Network. These are organizations that are very important and important to our work, whether you're getting involved directly with our organization or not, making sure you're actually aware and connected to the organizations on the grounds and the ones that are whatever compatible, you know, to your preferences at the moment, because we do all work together and we do all pull for the same goals. Thank you for sharing all of that. And then just do wanted to say thank you, period, Rebecca, for your work, for your leadership, um, for, you know, for your commitment to, to doing this in the places that are most critical um, and, and, you know, and also for coming on the pod and sharing with us today. So thank you so much for all of that. Thank you all so yes. much. Thank you, Rebecca. Okay. That's all the time we have for today. Really enjoyed that conversation with Rebecca. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Uh, if you have not already, you can follow Rebecca on Twitter at, at Rebecca Marquez, M-A-R-Q-U-E-S. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook and signing up for our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. And I thank everyone who shared it with our friends during our newsletter push last week. And something that's a core component of what we're sharing with our supporters and our, and our, our readers and our audience. And so if you haven't yet, you should really sign up for the newsletter, the newsletter and the podcast. You'll have the full Democracy in Color communication apparatus with you. Um, if you do listen to the podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment there. We really appreciate those. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.